What you're about to hear is the audio from the webinar we hosted yesterday, Getting Graphic Comics Around the World. If you prefer to see the webinar, you can access it on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Alia Graphic Novels and Comics. We want to thank our amazing speakers and also all the participants for the contributions they made during the webinar. Now on with the show. I would first like to acknowledge the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the custodians of the land from where I'm speaking, and I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all First Nations people across the land. Now, before we get started, a couple of housekeeping things. So we will be, we are recording this event and making it available on our YouTube channel. So just give us a day or two uh, to get it sorted, but it will be there. Please keep your mic muted to avoid unwanted noise and disruption. And we also hope to have time at the end for questions. So if you have any questions, please put them on the chat and we'll try to answer them at the end. Um, I'm Jurgi from Kingston Libraries in Victoria. And I also have the honor of being uh, the convener for Alia Graphic Novels and Comics and working with a very, very small group, but an amazing team of people. Uh, so I'm gonna be uh, sharing the screen now, and hopefully this works. We practiced it before. And here we go. All right, so um, today I'm just going to talk a little bit at the start about uh, comics a little bit around the world to kind of frame the conversation a little bit. So uh, what do we call this thing that we love so much? So of course, uh, in library world, we call them graphic novels most of the time, but they have a lot of different names around the world. I grew up knowing them as TVOs, uh, very, um, also as comics, which in my opinion is the word for the medium. And it's, my, it's the word that I use most often you know, to, to talk about them. And around the world, I, uh, I see that there are three main focal points um, in how comics, where comics are being published and where there's a bigger industry. So we've got the US, obviously we've got Europe, and we also have manga, which is huge. So I just wanna, of course, I'm not gonna cover everything, you know, because this is just a very short thing. So I'm being very general, but uh, in the US, there were comics before, but it all changed with a migrant, a refugee and an illegal alien who could be a powerful threat, but he was not. Uh, he became an ally and a friend and it was Superman. And, there were comics before, but really with superheroes, um, comics became a lot more popular and really hit mainstream. Then uh, there was another big turning point in the late 70s and early 80s with a contract with God by Will Eisner and also Mouse and Watchmen. And uh, these comics uh, or graphic novels uh, as they were sold as, yeah, um, really changed a lot of perceptions. Um, 
moving on to Japan, Japan is quite a different story in that uh, in Japan, pretty much uh, a lot of people read comics and, and even adults, and you see them reading them everywhere. Um, for example, uh, and in, manga is published in magazines that are published weekly, and they're pretty cheap and easy to get. Uh, another thing that's very different with manga is that they uh, publish them um, they publish them uh, with target audiences in mind and uh, in the shops, it's also the same. So shonen is for teenage boys, seinen is for men, I guess you could say, shoujo is for teenage girls and josei is for women. And then you have komodo muke, which are all ages. For, um, and that's how they're published and that's how also they're, um, sold in stores. So they're in those kind of target audiences. Of course, there's cross-pollination between them. So, you know, um, like I know a lot of boys that read shoujo and that's fine, you know, but uh, in Europe, uh, especially in France and Belgium, uh, there, uh, comics are often referred to as the ninth art. And uh, they've been highly respected for a long time and they're published in albums or graphic novels, call them whatever you want. Over there, they're called albums. Um, the most famous ones, of course, Tintin and Asterix. I was always in the Asterix camp. Uh, but they also publish a lot of comics for adults and all sorts of genres. And that's one of the beautiful things that I, I, I I really love about European comics that they publish all sorts of different genres. One of my favorite um, series is Toggle, the one there on the left. And it's a really epic, massive uh, saga with lots of North, uh, Nordic influences. Italy also has a significant uh, comics industry. Spain, uh, which I grew up with. So I grew up in Spain and I read a lot of comics there. And Paco Roca, in my opinion, the one on the right, is one of the most interesting comic book creators um, right now, in my opinion. So that all leads us to, we are an Australian group. So what about Australian comics? And one thing that in this group we, we really wanted to do was to raise the profile of Australian comics. And, and we've noticed that very often they go under the radar. So we've been promoting a lot of Australian comics. And these are some that were just published this year. So this is just a small selection of uh, Australian comics that were published this year. And there's so much more, you know, and that's one of the ongoing things that we really want to do. We want to promote um, these comics. And if anyone here is, uh, um, is um, watching us from the US, still alive, uh, notes from Australia's immigration detention center is a great uh, detention system, is a great graphic novel that's uh, been picked up by Fantagraphics actually, um, and is gonna be published next year over there. Uh, so one to keep an eye on. So that's pretty much it from me. That was kind of like a little introduction of, you know, um, just in general around the world. And we're very lucky today, and I'm gonna stop sharing now. Um, we're very lucky today to have Daniel Best with us. He's an Australian comics historian and author, 
with a vast knowledge of Australian comics history. Now, unfortunately, lots of Australian comics still today go under the radar, uh, although things are getting better all the time. And uh, so I admit I gave Daniel um, an impossible task, but he's going to give us an overview of Australian comics in less than 10 minutes. <laughs> Off you go. Thank you very much for that. I'll do my best. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm in Adelaide, so I come to you from traditional lands of the Ghana people. And I've been asked to, to speak about the importance of Australian comics and history and what they mean and what they should mean to, the, to libraries and librarians. Uh, I have to say I'm very pleased to be given the opportunity to talk and I'll answer as many questions as anyone might have. When we look at the history of Australian comics, the first Australian comic books appeared in the first decade, as early as the first decade of the 20th century, when a comic book called Vumps was published. And copies of this comic still exist in the University of Melbourne and the National Library. At least those two have them. And Vumps was produced in 1908. Now, before Vumps, we used to get, uh, when I say we, I'm not that old, uh, what Australia would get would be books, uh, pulp, and they would be mainly text with one panel illustrations. Uh, and they'd have titles such as Melbourne Cartoon. But Vumps was more than that. It, it had text, it had one panel illustrations, but it also had pages of sequential strips. So it was a comic book before its time. Our main comic books that we had were appeared in Sunday's newspapers and they were supplements and they had names like Sunbeams. And this is where you'd find the likes of May Gibbs and you'd find Jimmy Banks with, with Ginger Megs, uh, Sid Nichols and Fatty Finn and many, many more. And they would be targeted solely at children. So you'd get your Sunday paper and you would take the supplement out and you would give it to your child. And it was effectively a comic book within a newspaper. And the popularity of these strips in the 1920s saw collect the first collected edition of Ginger Megs, which was called Sunbeams. And it was an annual and it came out in 1921. And some people believe this to be the first true Australian comic book. There were annuals for Fatty Finn. There were annuals for strips called Pop. Uh, all kinds of newspaper strips. And, of course, May Gibbs with her bib and bub and all of her whimsical little characters, which were coming out as textbooks with illustrations but were sequential. In the 30s and 40s, people started to realise that comic books something to read. They were being imported from America and a few from England. And we had people like Sid Nichols who created Fatty Finn and he put out a series of books and they were, they were large, very large formatted and they were graphic novels in their own way. And they were named Mini Malone. They were pirate adventures. And between Sid Nichols and, another, and other creators, they were put together Australian comic books. And it was in the 40s, the mid-40s onwards, that the industry exploded. You had artists like Moira and Kathleen Bertram. You had Monty Wed, Stanley Pitt, Keith Chateau. All kinds of people were producing comic books. Uh, publishers such as Ken Murray, 
the Yatha Syndicate, they were publishing them. It was great. And some of this work was of, was the equal, the, not even the equal, I would, I'd say, not so much the equal, some of them, especially by Moira Bertram, were better than what was being published anywhere in the world. And we had some of our artists uh, go overseas to work. Uh, the first non-American artist to work in the American mainstream comic book industry was an Australian who did covers for DC Comics. Unfortunately, he was a fine artist, not a comic book artist. He would do anything for money. A paper shortage in World War II and the costs of reprinting American comics saw the industry start to slowly die. And by the beginning of the 1960s, the Australian comic book industry was, was finished. And this was a shame because a lot of the creators that we had then were just hitting their straps, they were coming to their primes, and we lost them. Uh, we lost the likes of Paul Whelan, who went into writing Western pulp novels and things like a country practice for television. So the industry, once it was dead, was gone. But it, it was only sleeping. In the 1970s, Australian comics began to appear. Gerald Carr in Melbourne uh, produced the first Australian locally written, drawn and published comic book in 1970 called Wart's Epic. And that was the first one since the, the late 1950s. And as the 70s ended, the 80s began, we started getting things like Willow Papers from Adelaide, Ink Spots and Little Australian Funnies came out of Melbourne, Oz Comics and the Dynamic Dark Nebula and all kinds of books coming out of Sydney. And what it was adding up to was Australian writers and artists found they could produce their own comic books and they went for it. And in 1985, 86, there was an Australian comic convention and that's where things really hit the straps. Cyclone Comics began, and that was led by Gary Shaloner. And he was aided by the likes of David DeVries, Glenn Lumsden, and they produced superhero comics. Now, unlike a lot of these other publishers, Cyclone Comics became important because it produced their books on a regular, semi-regular basis, but they were sequential books. Cyclone Comics won two, three, four, whereas other publishers were doing one-shots. So this was the first time that Australian superheroes had begun to appear in a regular, ongoing series of comic books since the 1950s. And it's just gone from there. It, it, it went crazy in the 90s. And the emergence of pop culture and comic book conventions have seen Australian creators get a head start where their predecessors were not able to do so. Many Australians have worked overseas. Uh, and in the cases, the case of the likes of Tom Taylor and Colin Wilson and Nicholas Scott, they still do work overseas. The Ledger Awards, which is now known as the Comic Arts Awards of Australia, was established by Gary Shallon in the early 2000s, is still going strong. And each year, the ledgers, which celebrate Australian comic books and their creators, they produce a free annual. They're readily available. They should be in every library because they are packed with information about what is current and the past. The ledgers talk about the history of comics as much as they talk about the current comics. The popularity of the ledgers is in the, uh, the magazine for the Australian Cartoons Association, which has been around 
since the 1920s. And that magazine, Inkspot, has increased its focus on Australian comic books and their creators, whereas they used to just merely focus on cartoonists who worked for syndicates and newspapers. Now, this, this explosion has seen people conduct courses on comic books. Our universities now do courses on them. And people have, created, have completed doctorates, such as Kevin Patrick, Dr. Kevin Patrick, we should call him now. Most recently, Bruce Mutard, who's completed a PhD using his own comic book work as his thesis. And the University of Melbourne has received grants to produce major explorations of Australian-produced comic books for the latter half of the 20th century onwards. That'll be led by Dr. Elizabeth McFarland. And this is where I believe, with this history, this is where libraries come into it. There is a plethora of Australian comic books being produced monthly. And these range from small print run, one-off, privately published zines to professionally produced comic books that rank up there with anything in the world. Most are launched by Kickstarter because any comic book professional will tell you that there's no money in it in Australia. You can't make money out of it. So they need to be funded. In order to fund it, they need to sell copies. And every library should be trying to build a collection and not just of the more commonly known works. I walk into libraries and I see Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, and I see you know, a smattering of books, manga, all of that sort of thing. And I see very little Australian comics and I see very little Australian comic book collections. And it, it, it hurts because these books that are being produced now, some of them are of the equal, if not better, of what Marvel and DC can do because of these comic books that are coming from Australia as they always have are uniquely Australian. We don't write about spandex wearing superheroes. People who produce now, they write, they draw from, from their own lives. They create diverse books about social issues. They write about depression, their sexuality. They write about their happiness. They talk about discrimination, politics, so much more, so much more. And with this, there have been books produced about the history of Australian comic books. From 1979's Panel by Panel by the late John Ryan, which was one of the first, Books by Vane Lindsay, Roger Morrison, Dr. Kevin Patrick, Graeme Cliff, Mick Stone, Annette Shield, all of these books should be in libraries. I've even written about Australian comic books and I'm still doing it now. And you should have them because when people say, what do you know about Australian comics? You go, not much. Have a look at these books. Read panel by panel. Read Bonza. Read some of these things. Read from sunbeams to sunsets and go, Educate yourself, learn these books, have a look at them and go for it. And I believe a lot of this is because for far too long, there's been a cultural cringe when it comes to Australian produced comic books and our creators. We look down upon them. We look at the Americans and to a lesser extent, the English. And we look at the Europeans and the Japanese. We go, oh, they're giants. They're giants amongst people. And we look at our Australian creators and we think, who cares? We look at people like Julie Dittrich, who's, who's now writing The Phantom, the first woman to write The Phantom. And that should have been front page news, but it's not. Uh, we look at Gary Shalimar, who's producing some amazing work out of Tasmania, and nobody knows because nobody sees it. Look at Darren Close producing work, Dylan Naylor, and we don't see them 
we need to get rid of this cultural cringe. We need to eliminate it completely. We need to show readers and people that these comic books are vital and important. And part of that, part of that can be done easily. In 2006, there was an exhibition in Victoria called Heroes and Villains, and it was curated by Dr. Kevin Patrick. And that exhibition was amazingly popular. It had Australian comics, past, present, and even future. And it had original art and biographies. And I think any and every library can do this. You can create, you can curate this, you can get hold of, you can get hold of collectors all over the country. And you can say, what can you get? What can you get from these, from these collectors? Can you get the comic books? Yes, from the creators, most certainly. Contact them. They will happily, in most cases, just give them to you because they want people to see them. The original art, our, a lot of our original art doesn't exist. I've been collecting original art for years and my collection of Australian original art is vast and it's set in the past mainly. I would happily let a, a library here in South Australia put that on exhibition. We need this stuff to be seen. We need to end this cultural cringe. We need to show people that the American comics, the European comics, the Japanese comics, yes, they're good. They're entertaining. They're great to read. And yes, we've got some amazing Australians working in those fields. And it's not to denigrate them, but our Australian comics, the phantom now is, is no longer reprinting, reprinting European strips. It's doing Australian strips by the likes of Glenn Lumsden and Jason Paulos, Jeremy McPherson. You know, we need to be showing people and saying, look at this. You need to read this. You need to see this. And you need to be doing it. And as librarians, and I know there's a lot of librarians here, I urge you, get hold of the creators. Speak to me, speak to some of these other people. They're more than happy to put you in touch with them. There's Facebook groups dedicated to Australian comics and creators, not the reprints that came out from the, uh, from the 60s and still do when we used to reprint the, the American stuff, but Australian comics created, produced and published by Australians for Australians. We have a unique voice. And we share, it shows through in our books, whether it be humour, whether it be satire, whether it be some of the most heartbreaking things you'll ever read. One of the best comics, just in closing, that I read recently was a little, I think it was only eight pages, and it was called Good Boy. And it was written by an Australian. And it was about, it was a, about a dog who wandered around the house and a man that just kept looking at empty chairs and the dog was always there. And at the end on the last page, uh, the dog meets death and he says, was I a good boy? And death says, of course you were. I was in tears reading it. Anyone that's ever lost a pet would know that these things, you, you don't get that anywhere else in the world. We get it here in eight pages, one person, told a story that brought virtually everyone I know who's seen it to tears. I'd like to see an American try that one. That, that 12-issue miniseries. So please, I implore you, 
let's get on to the history. I'm quite happy to send a bibliography through, and we will be sending a bibliography through of, of the yes. books I've mentioned, the history of yeah. books, about, the book about Australian comic books. And I am also working on a series of books about Australian comic book publishers from the 80s onwards. Uh, and they'll be available with the first one, fingers crossed, which will be on Cyclone Comics and what happened with that. Uh, be available by the end of the year. And then we're hoping to push out about three per year until myself and Gary Shalimer, who I, I'm still stunned that I can collaborate with that man, uh, until myself and Gary Shalimer finally fall off the perch. We'll just keep putting it out there, putting out this history. Yeah. There's so much, so much you need to know and so much you need to be telling people. Show them what we've got. Show them our past. Show them our present. And they will be the future. So thank you again for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, you know, and for speaking with such passion. You know, I, I obviously didn't grow up in, a, in Australia. I think my accent is quite clear. It's not Australian, but uh, you know, in the 20 years that I've been here, like I've been diving in and trying to learn and, you know, and like the, the annuals from the ledgers have been great. And, yes. you know, so uh, I'm talking with Bruce and, and now with you and I'm constantly learning and there are a lot of great comics. So thank you so much. And I'm always happy to be Yep. And, uh, and yes, as Daniel mentioned, and I mentioned in the chat as well, we will be a list of resources and bibliography. Now, moving on, our, our next uh, speaker is Tara, and she's the Library Services Collections Officer at Wollondilly Library in New South Wales, where as I understand it, graphic novels were almost dead and they were ready to scrap them. And then Tara became a graphic novels champion there and changed things around. So let's hear from her. Okay, thank you, Yogi. I'm just gonna try and share my screen here. Okay. Are we seeing that? <laughs> Yes, all good. Yes, okay, okay. Okay, um, yeah, so as Yogi said, uh, my name is Tara and I'm speaking to you from Darawal land. Um, the Collections and Resources Coordinator at Alia Graphic Novel Group and also the Library Collections Officer at Wollandilly Library, which is a, we're a one branch library sort of semi-rural on the um, outskirts of Greater Sydney. So I'm just going to do a short talk on cataloguing and shelving graphic novel collections in your library and I'm going to use a project that um, I have been working on for the last 12 months or so with the adult graphic novel collection in my library. Um, so I am focused here on the adult graphic graphic novel collection. Um, however, the changes that we've made, we are planning to duplicate now YA and junior graphic novel collections. Um, so we do have separate 
graphic novel collections for um, junior YA and adult. And this is important because it just ensures we are putting the appropriate content um, into the right readership level and interest group. It also means we can put our graphic novel collections in those spaces that are designated to those age groups. So of course, and of course, any decision really on how you're going to shelve or locate your collection is going to be dependent on the space you have and the staff resources that you have available. Uh, just bring up. So just a quick summary of the project in October 2020, uh, we embarked on revitalising our adult graphic novel collection. So after lots of reading and researching and figuring things out on how to best improve access and increase our circulation, this is what we did. So firstly, location. Originally, our adult graphic novel collection was wedged between large print and the audio books at the back of our library, which you can see by that red cross all the way back there. So really anyone interested in borrowing a graphic novel was unlikely to look there. And I think the single biggest impact to increasing our circulation occurred when we moved the collection out from there into the front of the library, which is on the right picture on the right hand side here. And it's now located in our other browsable collections like the adult new releases, the magazines and the DVDs and there's seating there. And so even without having new titles on the shelves because we hadn't purchased anything for about 12 to 18 months, um, they were on order, but simply moving this location and making some good displays of the covers, increase the circulation of the older titles. So it was really important to maximize that visual impact of the graphic novels and to try and display those covers as much as possible. I've just got a few pictures here. This is a, a library overseas where all of the covers are faced out. And down in Victoria, um, they do have the graphic novels shelved with the spine out, but so much room for display. And if you have a lovely big space like that, um, you can really make the most of it. Um, here in Wollandilly, this is our adult graphic novel collection. So we have our shelving unit, but we've really tried to display as much as we can by using the ends of shelves and the top of the bookcase. And we also try and put some new titles mixed in with the adult new releases as well. Um, as after all, most graphic novel readers really do appreciate the artworks and illustrations. And you might even attract new readers that are lured over by the curious cover. Um, again, this definitely depends on how much space you have. So the next thing we did was with our shelving, we've actually separated um, the graphic novel within the collection. We've got the DC Comics, Marvel and nonfiction down the bottom there. 
and I will soon be separating out separating out the um, manga as well because this collection has grown over the year. When it comes to the two superhero comics, um, we find many readers gravitate to one of the big two. So separating them out, patrons can find them more easily. Um, and for those who are not into superhero uh, graphic novels and comics, um, they find it easier to find other titles when these are sort of pulled out of that area. And of course, another reason for grouping DC and Marvel into their own space was to keep the character series together. Um, and a similar case could be made for the manga readers who generally just want to read manga. And this makes finding titles easier too if, if that is separated out. Um, another good reason to separate your manga is that you might be able to adjust your shelf height because they tend to be smaller format. Next, we looked at our spine labels. Um, I haven't got it shown here, but we, on the spine labels now, we'll have DC and Marvel for those collections. Um, whoops. But probably, oh, putting volume stickers on um, has been a really good help for patrons and for staff. Um, often the graphic novels do not have volume numbers on the spine, um, or they could be placed on the front, which is usually obscured by the way we've shelved them. So often patrons who are reading a series will know what volume they are up to, but not the title of that volume. So having the volume numbers uh, displayed makes it easy to pick up where you left off. And also for staff, um, it means the graphic novel series can be shelved in order, looks more organised, looks tidier. And another reason is with DC and Marvel continuously relaunching and renumbering the volumes in their series, um, you'll probably need to examine what particular series the title belongs to um, so that you have the correct sequence there, but it certainly helps with reading. Cataloging brings me to cataloging. The cataloging record, we've made sure that it reflects what is on the spine label as far as where it is held. Um, for series, we've had the series title, the volume, and then the subtitle in the 245 main title field. Um, again, many readers may not remember what the subtitle is, but they'll know what uh, volume they are up to in the series. And of course, we have the links in the 490, 800, 830 tag as well. And although this might be not quite perfect cataloging standards, um, it does make the catalog more accessible for the user, which is what we really want. So results. We have really diversified our collection titles this year. Um, we've increased our nonfiction titles. So we have topics on medicine, sociology, politics, activism, gender, mental health and memoirs. Um, our manga collection is expanding and the general collection, we've expanded all our titles in fantasy, horror, science fiction, thriller, mystery, Western and contemporary fiction. 
We've made the collection more visible and eye-catching. It is easier to locate the graphic on the shelf and in the catalogue using the face out and displays. And circulation has increased um, by over 50%, even during you know, our tumultuous periods in lockdowns and reopenings. Um, and our borrowers have actually are much more diverse, um, just like our collection. So that is a wrap for me. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. And, uh, you know, I think that cataloging and shelving is always a work in progress and a contentious issue. And every library kind of does it a little bit differently. Um, and, and that's fine. And I think, you know, we have the rules, uh, but then we need to bend the rules sometimes as well, you know. Um, as you said, thinking of the patrons and, and trying to make things easier, more visible for them. And and one thing, uh, as you said as well, putting it at the front or you know in a more visible place, it still astounds me. You know that the these people who come into the library and suddenly are surprised and shocked that oh, but you have comics? Yes, we do, and we have an excellent collection of comics. Oh, I didn't know that you had comics. Well, we do. <laughs> Please borrow them. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, the more we we advocate for them, the better. Anyway, uh, um, we'll move on to our next speaker, who is sustained up late to talk to us. And I'm really happy to have Matthew No with us. He's the president of the American Library Association's Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable, which is quite a mouthful. And I usually just say the round table. Uh, he's also an academic librarian and an incredibly active champion of graphic medicine. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And yeah, sorry, it's uh, approaching 11 p.m. here. So if I'm a little loopy, that's why. Um, I've been trying to recaffeinate with tea, but it seems to not be working as well this late. Um, so yeah, I will try to get through all of this quickly. Let's see if I can find my slides. All right, and hopefully you all can see this. So this first slide is just, you know, a uh, comic picture of my face and who I am and what I'm up to. Um, so I, I'm by day, I'm the lead collection and knowledge management librarian at Harvard Medical School. So I'm a, an academic health sciences librarian, mostly. Um, I teach future librarians in, the, in a grad program here, um, among other things. The stuff in purple here is what I'm here wearing the hats of today. Um, the, the president of the ALA GNCRT. I just abbreviated that way because it is a mouthful. Um, and then I'm also, we have a... Uh, uh, an official nonprofit org now for graphic medicine called the Graphic Medicine International Collective. Um, and I'm our current treasurer for that. Um, so I, I've kind of split this up. I'm going to talk about ALA first and then graphic medicine second. I thought about combining them into one like meandering talk, but it got too confusing. So it's just a hard divide for now. So yeah, the, the, the graphic novels and comics roundtable, you know, we are... The, uh, the, the comics arm of the American Library Association. 
Um, we're a, a membership organization where we, you know, work to support comics and comics librarians and all of the things that they're doing, like collection development and programming and, and advocacy. Um, the, this, this battle about the legitimacy of comics that came up a little earlier is still ongoing in the U.S. as well, which is weird considering how thriving a market there is here, but we constantly are trying to reassure both educators, sometimes other librarians, and all the time parents that comics are reading, comics are valid, um, and that we sh should be encouraging readers, whether it's comics or you know novels like it, it's not this either or thing and so that's uh that's kind of our goal here is to really just promote the the use and of comics and in, in libraries um and so what we do is 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 wide-ranging um i'm not going to expect you all to read these picture these <laughs> these walls of text it just was easy to frame it this way um so these are screenshots from our our volunteer page right now this year um we have our, our work broken up into these different sections like communications, you know, taking care of the social media stuff, our, our online programming wing. Um, we, we participate in conferences and comics conventions. Um, that was a little bit awkward and on hiatus so far the past like 18 months with the pandemic. Um, this year we're kind of rebuilding and refocusing and getting back into that. Um, even though the pandemic is still ongoing and it's particularly a mess in the U.S., um, but we're, we're, we're trying to move forward as safely as we can. Then we've got these bigger, broader buckets of resources where we've got uh, uh, best of reading lists and grants that we that we give out and and collaborative programming. And then our miscellaneous category is where, you know, if there's something new that comes up and it doesn't fit somewhere, we're going to run with it as best we can. Um, I'll touch on one of those a little more in a second. So I mentioned these grants. Uh, one of the most exciting things that we do as a roundtable is we administer the Will Eisner graphic novel grants for libraries here in North America. Um, uh, these are made possible by a, a foundation, um, and these are our most recent awardees. Um, where we promote things like it, it's awarded to programming events, um, collection building, um, broadening, diversifying collections. Um, in all sorts of settings, we've awarded these grants to prison libraries and school libraries and university and public, uh, the whole range. Um, and every year it gets harder and harder to pick the winners because there's so many deserving ideas and opportunities. Um, we just have the money we have. Um, uh, but so some, some other things, I mentioned the pandemic, you know, back in last March, you know, in the U.S. anyway, that's when things kind of locked down. March 2020, people were sent home. We stopped having in-person events. And so we quickly uh, came up with these ideas of how to keep promoting comics in libraries when people are worried about going out. Um, and so one thing we did was we, we created this uh, quick guide to reading library comics at home, which was really a tool we were hoping librarians would use with their patrons um, to show their patrons that even if the library is physically not open, you can still read comics at home. Um, and then Lib Comics Online, which was initially a short-term uh, program switch because we couldn't do face-to-face -face events, where we started doing all kinds of online virtual programming. 
Um, that is still ongoing. And I think that's just the norm now. We're going to have a mix of online and in-person programming. So we're, we're always bringing new ideas to people. We have these best of graphic novels lists. Um, the, the best graphic novels for adults reading list is the one that's really you know near and dear to me for this. Um, not that they're not that we don't need a, a children's best of list, but those kind of lists have been circulating for a while in other library organizations. The adults list, though, has kind of been an empty hole. We know that adult comic readers are are a large part of our patron base. There are a ton of great adult comics, but there wasn't really this like clearinghouse hub for for librarians to go look at and say, hey, this is what we should make sure that we have this year. So now we're providing that space and we have a very dedicated group of volunteers who are endlessly reading comics that are suggested to them and that they're coming across to to figure out what this best of list should look like each year. Speaking of lists, you know, a big thing we're, we're working on is collaboration. Um, so we also last year collaborated with the uh, Black Caucus of the American Library Association um, to bring our memberships expertise together to create a Black Lives Matter comics reading list. Um, this is the front cover of that, and this is the end page. There's three or four pages in between here. I could not fit them all on a PowerPoint slide, um, but this was a, a, a especially curated list of stories about Black lives created by Black creators. Um, and since then, we've also um, we've released five or six other more narrow, more specialty lists featuring comics by Black creators. I mean, this is an ongoing process where we have webinars and, and try to make sure that we're promoting these, these titles and creators who might otherwise be missed. This is a, we also, this is a launch webinar we did for that list with John Jennings, Stacey Robinson, and Demosa Weber Bay. Um, it was a great conversation that similarly to us here, uh, was so impassioned that we're likely to run over a little bit, um, but it was it was well worth it and amazing. Um, that this is this is recorded. If you go to the GNCRT website, you can find this recording, um, and it's worth your time. And then, so uh, every year, the GNCRT president gets to throw a program of their own at ALA Annual. Um, it, we ours is a little different than a lot of other groups, where the incoming president holds the program, um, and then it sets the tone for their presidential year, rather than it being a capstone to the year. Um, so I held mine in June. Um, this is that graphic medicine connection a little bit, um, where we discussed, you know, comics and health. Uh, I titled it a match made in the gutter because I can't resist a bad comics pun. Um, and uh, it brought together, you know, Dr. Ian Williams. He's a Welsh physician who coined the term graphic medicine and MK Serwick, who's a nurse here in the US. Um, they're both also cartoonists. Um, you may know the bad doctor or taking turns, or you may know MK from uh, recently Eisner award-winning uh, comics anthology Menopause, which I highly recommend. Um, and Brittany Netherton, who is also on the ALA uh, GNCRT membership and is co-chairing our Lib Comics uh, committee this year. Um, but she's also our public library's liaison to graphic medicine. So we just had a great conversation um, about how to bring those comics into the library. This recording is also available. It's about an hour long, so you can get a lot more out of it than sitting and listening to me ramble for five minutes. Um, and then we do these awesome events like Creators Get Carded uh, for Library Card Sign Up Month. This just concluded. It, it took place during uh, uh, September. 
Um, and this is a video, but I, I tried it earlier and it doesn't really work on Zoom like it's supposed to, so I won't click it. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a whole month where we showcase uh, comics creators with their library card and just in a selfie promoting their recent work and their favorite local public library. Um, it's just this really cool way to get creators engaged with the library community and the patron community. Um, and it's it's a very low barrier to entry that might be something you all could recreate in Australia too. Um, uh, and then so speaking, we, we started slowly getting back into the comics convention. Uh, New York Comic Con was this past weekend. Um, our president elect, uh, Moni Barrett, uh, was lucky enough to do a virtual interview with Amelia Clark, who you might know from Game of Thrones, but is also now a comics cre creator herself. Um, so they had a great conversation. And then we had some of our more traditional panel programming at the event as well. This one highlighting, you know, the need for more diverse superheroes, um, which is an ongoing, endless thing in the U.S. and I suspect, you know, in, in Australia as well. And I think Matthew Murray posted this in the chat already, but we've been partnering with the, the uh, let me get the name right, the New York City School Librarians Association for this uh, ongoing series about manga in libraries. Um, manga has experienced a, an incredible surge um, in popularity since the beginning of the pandemic, driven a lot by I think people being stuck at home and anime being really available to watch endlessly forever. And then it leads people to the manga and then it just snowballs from there. Um, it doesn't help that we're experiencing a, a publishing backlog and a printing backlog. So people are struggling to get, you know, the popular series in stock in the library. And so these webinars are about, you know, you know, supporting learners with manga and bringing in titles that you might've missed and that sort of thing. We also are out here advocating, you know, this is an example of something recent, like there's a proposed change to the Library of Congress subject index that would impact uh, comics adaptations. It would kind of narrow things down to where adaptations are just adaptations. There's no differentiation between film or comics. Um, some of our membership was opposed to this. And so we are putting out a call encouraging people to, to, to send LOC their thoughts on why it is a bad idea. Um, and then real quick, thinking future planning, uh, my presidential goals kind of for the year is, you know, we're continuing our core work of connecting and collaborating. Uh, we want to find new partnerships. We've been working with BCALA, what other, you know, affiliates of ALA could we work with or other groups internationally could we work with to create these kind of lists. Um, and then I'm planning to, in the spring, try to pull together all kinds of comic organizations to do like this membership fair. We don't know what we don't know, right? So if we bring all the orgs together for our collective memberships, maybe we can all kind of cross-pollinate a little bit. A little boring, but we're still working on refining our organizational structures. Um, GNCRT is three, maybe four years old now. Um, officially, you know, we're a relatively new roundtable. We were the first roundtable to be approved in years at ALA, so we don't really have any guidance on what we're doing. Um, we have great, our, our staff liaison, Tina Coleman, is a superstar and amazing, and she guides us. Um, but we're kind of making things up and setting ourselves up as we go. And so it's been a learning and, and ongoing process. You know, and we're working on developing and launching a comics mentorship program, comics librarianship mentorship program. Um, and then think, rethinking, you know, how do we re-enter conventions in a hybrid world where people are still maybe in and out of uh, com conferences? 
So this is, I encourage you to connect with GNCRT. Um, and now I'm going to put on a different hat, uh, graphic medicine hat very quickly and run through this. So uh, apologies for the quick turn. Um, but graphic medicine, what, what is it? Graphic medicine is uh, defined all academically as the intersection of the medium of comics and the discourse of healthcare. Really, we're just talking about anything comics that's related to medicine or healthcare or public health, nursing, anything that's about the experience of health communicated through the medium of comics. And for, for practitioners in the field, this means reading comics, it means creating comics, it means um, things that are comics adjacent sometimes, like body mapping exercises. It, it, it's all this idea of visual communication about health but specifically, we're mostly talking about comics here. However you choose to define that, that's an endless battle that we're never gonna solve. <laughs> Some examples might be old school editorial cartoons trying to talk about the dangers of socialized medicine. The US is a strange place. Um, <laughs> we've got activist comics like these from during the HIV and AIDS epidemic, uh, trying to encourage people to you know, use condoms and be more uh, healthy in their sexual conduct. Um, we've got things like Mom's Cancer by Brian Fees, which is kind of one of those foundational core texts in the, the genre. Um, and this is one of my favorite panels ever. It's actually a full page, but um, where it's uh, playing the game Sorry, if you remember that, uh, that uh, infuriating board game. Um, but it's like going through the healthcare process where good luck getting to the end of the process without getting knocked all the way back to the beginning to start over again. Um, and then we've got, you know, things like these are just some stick figure drawings um, by Dr. Anita Ravi, um, where she was explaining to colleagues about what she sees in her clinic for, you know, poor uh, refugee patients, like traditional medical advice, like don't take your medicine on an empty stomach. So if you're a patient and you go home and your fridge is empty, what do you do? Do you not take your medicine because you have no food to eat? Like these kind of things that are, are often missed and taken for granted. And, and they can be so powerfully illustrated in just a few lines, even on a post-it note. Um, and as a way for physicians to reconnect with, you know, the realities of humanity beyond just a diagnosis. And then we've got some examples here of Uh, we have some examples here of uh, clinical comics. You know, these are for kids, primarily the first two. Uh, a Young Person's Guide to Celiac Disease and Sophie Science Project, What is Medical Research? Trying to explain informed consent and, you know, celiac disease to kids through a medium that is accessible and fun and that they might actually read. Because adults aren't reading the, all the medical literature you're sent home with, kids sure as heck are not going to. And then we've got, you know, just another tool in the toolbox over here. This one's targeted more towards adults, but it's a guide to insulin for people recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You know, and it's a, an, an approachable way to this vital information. All right, so in pivoting to libraries more specifically here, in graphic medicine, the genre has been around for more than a century now. It just wasn't coined as a term until the mid 2000s. And there's really been an explosion of these memoir comics that are getting published by every comics publisher. And that's really where it's taken off um, and gained ground in medical uh, curricula and teaching. 
Um, but for libraries, it really kicked off in the U.S. when the National Library of Medicine uh, partnered with Ellen Forney, uh, the creator of Marbles, um, comic memoir to create this exhibit called Graphic Medicine, Ill-Conceived and Well-Drawn, which was the launch of NLM collecting comics, really. And that kind of made it okay for, for medical libraries to collect comics, because if it's happening at the, the highest level, then it must be okay for everyone else. You know, some of us have been advocating for years for it to be okay, but it took this push for everyone to finally pay attention, um, which is great. Um, and I'm glad it's out there now. Um, uh, a colleague and I, uh, Alice Jaggers, um, we've created this essential graphic medicine guide, which is an annotated bibliography of about 30 comics um, that if you were to start a graphic medicine collection, no idea where to go, no idea where to get started, this gets you. You know, just you can pick and choose from these and it's going to be those titles that everyone's talking about and using in their teaching um, and that are popular with patrons of all of all kinds. Some of those titles includes things like ones here. Um, I really like that Paco Roca has shown up several times in this presentation. Um, this is the English translation, Wrinkles. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful comic and I highly encourage you to check it out in whatever language you want. Um, Marbles is up here. Hyperbole and a Half is like a cult sensation. Like it's one of those comics that if someone doesn't read comics, you can hand it to them and they'll probably read it anyway. Um, it's really kind of about mental health, but it's worth reading for her dogs alone. Um, here are some more titles. These are the much more traditional. These are clearly graphic medicine works. Um, the Bad Doctor by Ian Williams, for example. Um, Pain is Really Strange is an informational one I give to a lot of people. Um, and Taking Turns is by, as I mentioned, M.K. Sorek before. And there are, there's all range of things here, including, you know, uh, revolution. Lissa takes place, you know, part of it takes place during the Arab Spring. Um, and, and, and it's, it's uh, broadening this idea of what counts in medical conversations. And then we get to, you know, the pandemic. <laughs> We've seen a lot of comics come out during COVID, um, both web comics, both diary comics, you know, zines like the Lockdown Lowdown. We've got two titles called COVID Chronicles, which is confusing for cataloging and for our patrons, but both are worthwhile and have very different approaches. We've got examples. Uh, these are some examples of scholarly work. Like this is not just a, we've got medical people taking comics seriously, um, which for me is always a, if I can convince the medical profession, which are among the stodgiest, most conservative people I've ever worked with in my life to take comics seriously, we should be able to get everyone that takes comics seriously. Like, it, it's just a matter of pushing in conversations. And, and some for some people, showing them these uh, medical journals, taking comics seriously will convince them that it's okay. Um, I wish appeals to authority didn't work, but sometimes they do. Um, an example of a crossover here, Early last year, uh, GNCRT and Graphic Medicine teamed up for this webinar talking about comics in the age of COVID. You can also find that recording on the GNCRT website. I mentioned the Graphic Medicine International Collective. That's our official nonprofit org. We run an annual Graphic Medicine Conference. Um, in 2021, we did it virtually. Um, in 2022, we are intending to be a hybrid conference uh, with the in-person part in Chicago, Illinois. Um, if anyone feels like taking a long trip from, from, from many time zones away, I would encourage you to consider it. And I'm happy to talk about it if you want. 
one-on-one. Um, -on -one. And I do wanna encourage everyone to check out our drawing together uh, programs. So um, I don't know what time this is for you all, but every month we have a different creator come and do an event where it's a, they show you a drawing prompt. And as a collective group, people join up on Zoom and draw and then share and reflect. And so it's this great community building opportunity. Um, and we do record the like the prompts. You can find those all on the Graphic Medicine website. And those are great for, say, you want to do a program at your library and you don't necessarily have the funds to bring a creator in. These videos walk you through how to, to do one of these exercises. So you could do it with your patrons as a self-led kind of thing. And we have Facebook groups and et cetera. And the international piece is huge. Um, there's more than just the people I'm going to mention here, but these are three groups that we highlight on the Graphic Medicine website right now because they have their own websites. Um, Medicina Graphica is our, is our Spanish language group. I don't speak Spanish, so I'm butchering the, the, the pronunciation. I apologize. Um, but they're, they're international on their own as well. We've got their board is situated both in Spain and South and Latin America. Um, and so they're doing all sorts of great work with translations and comics in Spanish. There is a Japanese graphic medicine organization. There is more medical manga than I even know of. And I do this like nonstop. Um, so much of it has never been translated. So if you're a translator and interested in translating something, get in touch with them. They've got all kinds of opportunities there. And then Pathographics was a uh, German-based project. I think they might be finished now, but they still have a website and there's a full book about the work they were doing there with German language comics. There's also, I know for sure, a large group of people working on graphic medicine in India. It's just, I don't think they have a set website from sharing. So when thinking about graphic medicine, I just encourage you to think about potential impact groups. You know, uh, one that should be on here for libraries is our patrons, but community, I think, covers that. You know, this is a this is a topic and genre that can be used for all sorts of things. People are looking for health information. They're looking for stories they can relate to. They're looking for a way to, uh, you know, process out these difficult emotions of dealing with a health crisis, and comics can help do that. So thank you all for letting me ramble for so long. You can find me on Twitter or email me anytime. And uh, I thought I had a last slide of a list of resources, but I can always share those later if people want. Thank you all. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. And um, that, was, that was all really interesting. And, and yes, if, if you could send us some of the, some links or some resources, that'd be great. We have shared actually some uh, of, of the things you've mentioned already. So some of those uh, panel talks that you had and webinars, um, uh, we've, we've shared. So of course, we encourage everyone to follow our Twitter uh, and our blog and our Facebook page. Uh, we probably share most things on Twitter. Uh, and then, you know, we also have the blog and the Facebook where we also share a lot of things. So we've already done the hour, uh, so, uh, but I noticed that we still have, uh, we still have more than a hundred people here. So um, I guess um, it, if everyone's okay with this, uh, if anyone has questions, maybe Jade, or James, if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them for the next few minutes. We're not gonna be too long, but 
uh, at least to answer a few questions. If there were any big burning questions. Uh, there were a couple. Um, yep. So we had um, the uh, Fatara one that was um, about the change in the collection. What did you um, do as far as collaboration with the community to build up the collection and how? Okay. Um, a lot of this actually, a lot of the big moves sort of happened in between lockdowns and whatnot. Um, we didn't have a lot of community engagement in the graphic novels to start with. So that was um, probably the, the bigger reason of trying to move it and, and save it, basically. Um, so we sort of just did the best we could, but now we are starting to get more community feedback um, and appreciation um, and people are liking the diversity of the collection. A lot of people didn't know we had one there. So, you know, now that's happening. Um, I think from now we, we will actually be encouraging and getting a lot more feedback and then we can tweak it um, a bit better. But we do try and encourage people to especially give us feedback on what they want to read, what they want to see. So. Yeah. And I think that, you know, once you start getting more borrowers, then you can start also having those conversations with them, uh, have a survey, you know, and things like that. Um, yeah. Was there any other? Uh, yep. There were um, quite a few on shelving. So um, hmm. one was um, when what happens when there are cross-age group items. Um, for example, the comic book Harry Potter versions, uh, nearly universal in popularity. Are they double shelved? There was another question very similar that was, is there a consensus on whether to shelve nonfiction graphic memoir with the graphic collections? or by Dewey Library of Congress in the relevant nonfiction and bio collection um, or a subsection within your graphic shelving. That's probably for all the librarians on the panel, um, those questions. Uh, Matt, do you want to take it? I mean, I can give my two cents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, in my setting, I it's a medical school, so it's a little different, but so the comics are their own section. Um, right. Graphic medicine is its own collection, it's shelved by itself. And and regardless of the library sitting, I'm always a big advocate for comics are a medium and or a format, however you wanna think of it. So they should be their own space. They should like interfiling them among, among regular books tends to, you know, it, it, they're either going to get lost, it, as they definitely would in a, an academic setting, because the textbooks are massive and the comics are often this big. Um, or you'll get people coming in specifically looking just for comics. Um, and so, like, if, if they can go directly to what they're looking for, that's going to encourage them a lot more than if they have to browse the whole of everything. Um, but I know, like, uh, my public library here, adult comics are all shelved together um, under Dewey, um, which can be frustrating for finding nonfiction. Like my preference is to separate out the fiction and nonfiction comics. Um, you could, they still should be their own space away from the rest of the books, um, but like dividing them up makes it a lot easier to browse and for things to be found. Um, 
and I, and I know several public libraries do it that way, but I know it's often a space issue too. Yeah, I think that the, the short answer is there is no consensus. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and lots of libraries do it differently. And, and uh, so that there is no one answer uh, for this. Uh, so it depends on your community, it depends on your library, um, but there are definitely some things that I think work to make it more visible and easier to, to find for patrons. And I think that's how we need to think about it. And this is one thing that we're really interested in and we're not gonna give a set of guidelines that this is how it has to be, but it's something that we're definitely discussing and something that I think we're gonna be publishing on our blog as well, like some general guidelines and then, you know, take it and adapt it, I think, because there's definitely not one answer. Uh, another another good question from the chat that's just come up is, I find there's a massive interest in graphic novels in the younger generation. However, they come up against resistance from their parents who really don't see them as valid reading material. Do you have any suggestions or strategies of how we can communicate their legitimacy and importance to parents? I'll start with that. I think that the main one for me, and uh, maybe it's because of my teaching background, uh, I did media studies and I also worked as a teacher for a few years. Uh, one way of approaching it is to talk to them about how awesome graphic novels are in terms of literacy, because you're not working on one literacy linguistic, you're working on multiple literacies. Um, so, um, and um, graphic novels, we always hear that they're great for reluctant readers because, you know, there's not so much text and, you know, and all that, but they're also great for advanced readers because uh, comics can be very complex texts where you can infer meaning, but sometimes the meaning uh, the, between what's written and the visuals is completely different and you need to put a lot of things together to make sense of it. So uh, talk to them about literacy. That's my main thing. Anyone else? Yeah, Matt? I was going to let Daniel go, but I, I think he's, oh, yeah. No, I'm just unmuted. I'm not a librarian, but I am a parent. Uh, when I was younger, I remember asking my mother a couple of questions and she wanted to know where I got this information from. And I pulled out a pile of Spider-Man comics. Uh, and when my daughter went to school, uh, one of her primary school teachers said that she reads comic books. And my response as a parent was, she's reading. Uh, so as a parent, uh, I would advise librarians that if a parent says, I'm not so sure about this, go, do you want your child to read or not? Yeah. That, that's my five cents worth on that. <laughs> yeah. Matt? Is Matt frozen? I think Matt's frozen. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I think I'm back. You're um, back. I'm back. Okay. Um, if you have a way to like model that you as a librarian are reading comics, like say you've got a staff picks list or, you know, a uh, an opportunity to read in the building, like host book clubs with comics, should, like that should help inspire confidence in the, the medium, but also like encourage the parents to read with their kids a comic. Um, I think all it's going to take is sitting down with 
you know, a good comic uh, once or twice with a and read along with a kid for them to really understand how complicated it can be, especially if you try to read the comic aloud. I don't know if anyone's anyone if you've ever tried to do that. It's incredibly difficult, at least I find, to read comics out loud in a way that you know is super clear. Um, and I think that's a good way to show just how complex they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, one, one thing, because we, we have a lot of people here, we're a very small group, Aliographic Novels and Comics. Uh, we've only, Matt mentioned that the roundtable has only been around for three, four years. We've only been around for less than two years. Uh, you know, we're still a, a little baby or a toddler. Um, and, uh, you know, if anyone wants to get involved in the group, uh, you know, we're always happy to uh, for more people to join the group, you know, and we're all volunteers in this group. So, yeah. Any other question, um, James? Um, yes, we had a couple that, that are kind of linked. So early on, we had someone ask, um, uh, very interested to hear people's thoughts on web comics um, and wanted to in incorporate them into the library. And later on, uh, about any experiences working with or complementing digital comics into a library setting. Um, and they've said since Comics Plus has left the building. Um, so uh, yeah, so web comics and digital versions of print comics, what have people's experiences with those been? I'm currently curating a, a database called Australian Comics Database with uh, Gary Shaliner. And we're looking at putting up as, many Australian comic books as we can find, both digital and physical. And when we come up with the uh, digital comics, we include the links. Uh, I think I put the link up a, a little while earlier. So I don't know whether that's of any use to people in libraries uh, when they're looking for where these digital comics might be. You'd be able to find them quite easily. Well, maybe not quite easily, but you'd be able to find them easily enough looking at this site. Uh, we're not the only one doing this sort of thing and other people are doing similar stuff as well. Uh, we're all working towards the same goal. You can find these from that link, from the, those things, just look through them and that'll tell you even what's being released. Recently, we, we, we're going back to the 1940s all the way through to now. So, and a lot of what comes out now comes out digitally. And as I said, when we find a digital comic, we put the details up there, we put where the link is, or we put the PDF yeah. up there. People can download it directly. And um, I, I can also say that on our blog, same thing when, you know, we went into lockdown last year, the, the first big one last year, we, we put a list of uh, Australian web comics uh, that, um, that you could read. And that's actually, uh, last time I checked, that was the most popular blog post in, in our whole blog uh, ever. So, um, so obviously some people have access to that. It wasn't the most comprehensive list, but it was all uh, um, Australian web comics. And the other thing is, I guess in terms of digital comics, there are a few services. So there's Hoopla, uh, there's uh, Libby, and uh, Comics Plus has actually not left the building completely. They've actually relaunched now with uh, Biblioteca. So they're, they're still very much alive. Uh, and I think they've changed the pricing and all that. Uh, so um, 
yeah, something to look at. Digital comics, uh, like everything digital, uh, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of money into a third party vendor. Um, they can be great. They can also be uh, a big strain in terms of the budget. Uh, so you have to be careful uh, with that. But the, I definitely read them uh, <laughs> uh, and through libraries uh, digitally, and they can be a really great thing. So something to think about. Matt, do you want to add anything to that? That can always add things. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think the, no, I, the, the digital comics thing is something I've been struggling with here a lot. Um, uh, in the graphic medicine world in particular, many, many of those comics have no ebook options published out there, whether you go through a service or not. Um, and so that's been creating difficulties for like, if when teaching suddenly goes virtual during a pandemic, how do you provide the, the, the book to the students? And that's been a challenge. Um, and, you know, what the best thing I've found to do with web comics in general has been to throw up, I, I'm really leery of throwing up web guides or resource guides as our solution to everything. But in this case, that seems to be actually a really good solution for this. Um, like our reading comics at home guide had some of those and it was really popular. Um, you all's blog post about that is popular. That's what works well. Just redirecting people to the services that are ideally free or low cost for them to use. Because very seldom are they something the library can purchase and integrate into the collection in any real way. Because like Webtoon's institutional licensing would be great. But as far as I know, that's not a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So do we have time for one more question then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do uh, so one. I mean, I think we could keep talking for endless hours. I know I could, yeah. but, um, but it's, uh, yeah, we should cut it off at some point. So let's just do one more. Okay. One more. Well, it's a bit of a doozy. Um, how can I convince my managers to buy more graphic novels? I'm a library tech, so have no control over a budget. Yes. All right, I completely understand you. I was in that position, you know, six years ago when I was a library officer. Uh, uh, so I wasn't even a librarian. I was, uh, I was doing the degree, but wasn't a librarian. Um, I think one of the big things that I've, I've said a, a million times is every library needs a graphic novels champion and you just need to champion them. So, you know, uh, do your research and do your homework and, uh, you know, look at the resources that we're sharing on our blog, uh, talk to us, talk to uh, the roundtable, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and people involved in the roundtable. And we have some of them here today. So we've got Matthew speaking, but I've noticed a few other names as well. So Matthew Murray is there as well. And I know Amy Wright is somewhere around as well. And um, uh, so, you know, they're, they're great people. And, and the thing that I found, and this was like five years ago when I started to get into this, is that uh, it's, it's a great community and everyone wants to help. And everyone's really kind and everyone's really helpful. And so once you do that and you get your research, then you can start advocating and being a champion and saying, well, this is why we need more. Because, for example, one of the big things with comics is that they have really high circulation rates. 
So, uh, and that at the library is gold. So that's one of the best things you can say. One of the highest uh, circulating collections in libraries, in any library is usually comics. That's it, that's already a winner. So I'd add yeah. to that about making sure that you um, track in library usage if you can as well, because comics have massive use within the library that doesn't necessarily, uh, is, isn't necessarily always reflected in um, borrowing statistics. So um, yeah, do try and make sure that you're, you're um, recording that in library usage. Good point. Blackburn. <laughs> and especially for nonfiction comics, um, the try to pitch it as a, I, you can pitch it as a cost-effective way to get circulating nonfiction materials because comics are often much cheaper than our nonfiction, you know, print physical books or, or traditional books. Um, and they're going to circulate a lot better in most cases. So really that cost per use is coming way down. And so if you're on a strapped budget, you know, you can go probably go a lot farther with $500 in comics than you can with $500 in reference work. Like, like think about that value switch off. You know, it, it and, you, and starting small can be an option too. Like, hey, can I have three three hundred dollars just to kickstart a comics collection? We'll see how it goes. Do some programming around it, and then you've got a proof of concept. That's how I started getting graphic medicine in medical libraries, and and that's that was the only way it could get going. And then when the proof that it was going to circulate showed up, then it's been grown to buy whatever you want and 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 keep it growing. Yeah. Well, uh, I think like all good things, sadly, um, you know, we need to stop at some point. And Matthew, I'm sure, wants to go to bed because <laughs> it's quite late for him. Uh, but uh, thank you to all the speakers uh, for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. And um, thank you for everyone attending as well. Uh, just give us a day or two to uh, make sure that the recording goes up on YouTube and to put uh, the resources and links and all that together. And we will send a follow-up email to everyone who's been here today. Um, and yeah, hopefully um, next year we'll have more of this, uh, more webinars and um, and join our group as well you know if you're a library worker I, I don't mind if you're a library officer library tech you know librarian uh, or public library school library academic library doesn't matter um, you know if you're interested in comics and libraries just join a group and uh, yeah we're all volunteers here uh, but yeah I think that's pretty much it anything else to add James who you're my secretary um did you mention we have a blog, we have socials, uh, follow us on there, even if you can't be part of the, the group, we'd love to have you as part of the group, but if not, um, yeah, keep in contact, we've got events happening, we've got creator chats on our YouTube channel, um, speaking earlier about finding out more about um, Australian comic creators, um, our creator chats are, are all Australian comic creators, or Australian comic industry, one went up earlier this week, I think, that's about Glom Press. Um, which is a um, publisher in Melbourne, uh, comics publisher in Melbourne. Um, I think that's it, yeah. It hasn't gone out yet, but it's it will. 
the Glompress. By the time this recording's up, it'll be out. <laughs> the Glompress episode will go out soon. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Alia Graphic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Alia Graphic, email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com and check our blog, aliagraphic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles.